0: These podcasts are being released in conjunction with the 5th National Climate Assessment. They feature conversations among NCA authors and staff about the report, the science behind the report, and the participants' experiences and perspectives. They do not represent official positions of the United States government. Enjoy!
1: Welcome to the companion podcast of the 5th National Climate Assessment. My name is Alison Crimmins, and I'm the director of the 5th National Climate Assessment, the United States government's preeminent report on climate change, its impacts, and how we are responding. When the first National Climate Assessment was released way back in 2001, I think climate change still felt a bit like something far off. Far off in the future, and maybe far away from the U.S. It was something that would happen someday to someone, but not me. And that is of course not the case. Climate change is here in the U.S. It is happening now and it's affecting us. Most people are experiencing climate change directly right now through either extreme weather events or because climate change exacerbates existing social inequities, or sometimes a combination of those two. One of the things that pops into our mind first when we think about climate change is that first one, changes in extreme events. Across the U.S., people are experiencing rapidly warming temperatures and longer-lasting multi-day heat waves that harm our physical and mental health. Many other extremes, including heavy precipitation, drought, flooding, wildfire, hurricanes, are becoming more frequent or more severe. Now, Since 2018, the U.S. has seen an increase in billion-dollar weather and climate disasters. In the 1980s, the country experienced on average one billion dollar event every four months. Now there is one on average every three weeks. And yes, that is inflation adjusted. There is a billion dollar event on average every three weeks in the US. And these events are very expensive. Extreme weather costs the US close to $150 billion each year and that is a conservative estimate because that number doesn't account for damages to our ecosystems or healthcare related costs or loss of life. So rises in extreme events are what often come to mind first when we think about what climate change looks like. But there's a second way that people are experiencing climate change right now in neighborhoods across the country that is just as real and just as damaging. And that is the way that climate change exacerbates existing social inequities. We know that some communities are at higher risk from climate change than others because of ongoing systemic discrimination, exclusion, and underinvestment. Many of these communities are already overburdened even before you throw climate change into the mix. Climate change impacts are not distributed equally, and they often act to worsen longstanding inequities in environmental, health, economic, or social conditions. This contributes to persistent disparities in the resources that communities need to prepare for climate change or to recover from impacts. For example, low-income communities and communities of color often lack access to adequate flood infrastructure, green spaces, safe housing, and other resources that help protect people from climate impacts. When we combine these two ways that we are experiencing climate change, more severe and more frequent extreme events, and the exacerbation of existing social and environmental stressors, we get ripple effects that multiply the harms. For instance, in 2020, record-breaking heat and widespread drought contributed to concurrent wildfires across California, Oregon, and Washington, exposing millions of people to health hazards and straining our firefighting resources. This ongoing drought amplified the record-breaking Pacific Northwest heat wave that occurred in June of 2021 which was made about two to four degrees Fahrenheit hotter by climate change. That heat wave led to more than 1400 heat-related deaths, another severe wildfire season, and mass die-offs of fishery species important to the region's economy and to the local indigenous communities. Total damages from these compounding events were more than $38 billion. And this was of course all happening during a global pandemic. This is just one recent example of how climate impacts alone or in combination with other stressors, can cascade across sectors and regions, multiplying the initial impacts and making communities more vulnerable to climate-related disruptions. So climate change is here in the U.S. It is happening now and it is affecting us. Even though it is affecting every part of the U.S. in some way, it does affect each region differently. There might be different impacts that are unique or specific to where you live in the U.S. So in this episode, we want to take you on a road trip around the country to hear from some of your neighbors about the climate impacts that people in your communities are already experiencing.
2: Coming up. One of the reasons why I love the Northwest is its proximity to a lot of natural landscapes, the Olympic Peninsula, the Cascades, the Rocky Mountains, the outer coast and the coastlines.
0: Kicking off our road trip around the NCA5 regions in the Pacific Northwest, NCA5 lead author, Michael Chang joins after the break.
1: We're joined today by Mike Chang, who is the director at Cascadia Consulting Group and the chapter lead for the Northwest chapter of the 5th National Climate Assessment. Tell me a little bit more about the Northwest region and maybe some of the things you love about living there.
2: I think one of the reasons why I love the Northwest is its proximity to a lot of natural landscapes. The Olympic Peninsula, the Cascades, the Rocky Mountains, the outer coast and the coastlines that we have. In addition to that, The Northwest has a lot of diverse communities. We have very rich urban centers like Seattle, Portland, and Boise. And then we also have a lot of rural communities across the region that provide the region and beyond with a lot of critical resources from agricultural products to fish to timber. And then again, for myself, this is where I live, my whole family lives here, and so definitely see the work that I do in the climate science and adaptation space is really closely related to both the health of my family and future generations.
1: We talk a lot about uh, how people across the United States are experiencing climate change right now. Um, so maybe you could tell us a little bit about what climate change looks like for you and your family and, and the other people living in the Northwest region.
2: Yeah. So. From a temperature perspective, the region has already warmed between two to two and a half degrees since the early 1900s. By the 2080s, children that are being born now will be in their 60s (laughs) by the 2080s. So it's within this current generation. We're going to expect that temperatures increase another five to 10 degrees within the Northwest. What this means is that heat waves will be longer, and when heat waves occur, they'll more likely be hotter. So the hottest temperatures will be even hotter than what we've historically experienced.
1: You mentioned extreme heat waves in the Northwest. And of course, we're all well aware of the big 2021 heat dome event. Can you speak a little uh, to that event and how it was related to climate change, but also what it was like uh, in the Northwest for the people living through that event?
2: In late June of 2021, the Northwest region saw a dome event that lasted for about a week. And during that time period, numerous temperature records across the region were broken when temperatures reached highs of 110s to the low 120s across the Northwest. And so this was particularly bad for the Pacific Northwest, mainly because historically this region has had fairly moderate summers. And so the temperatures that we were experiencing during this time period were about 30 to 50 degrees above the typical averages that the region usually experiences.
1: You were there during this heat dome event, right? Yeah. (laughs) What was it like to actually live through the heat wave yourself as as someone who's an expert in climate change, but also social science? um, what, What was the heat wave like for you?
2: Yeah, so at the time of the Heat Dome event, I actually lived in an older apartment building that had been built in the 1950s. And like a lot of older buildings, the apartment building didn't have air conditioning. So if you did have air conditioning, oftentimes the units themselves had a temporary window units. Fortunately, for myself, my family had a window air conditioning unit. What we saw was this beautiful kind of unintentional coming together of all of the apartment units where people with air conditioning within their own units opened up their doors to people without air conditioning.
1: I love that. That's a great story. I'm curious too, has there been a lot of changes that have happened since that 2021 heat dome in terms of improving resilience in the region?
2: Yeah, so in terms of community responses, I think the 2021 heat dome event was a really pivotal point for a lot of communities across the Northwest. A lot of health districts across the Northwest region have also been investing in emergency heat response plans. In addition to that, I think what we're also seeing is the beginnings of a lot of investments into more comprehensive strategies that are more proactive. So not just waiting for a heat wave to happen and then having some reactionary responses and actions. And so some of this more proactive planning, including investing in resilience centers, are beginning to happen as well within the Northwest.
1: Is there any big takeaway that you want people to know about your chapter or about climate change risks and responses in the Northwest region? I think
2: the big takeaway for the Northwest is that within the Northwest region, climate change is already affecting and will continue to affect virtually all of the systems and aspects of the Northwest that we value. So this includes our health and health systems our environment um, and our ecosystems, our regional economies and industries, uh, our infrastructure systems, and the heritage and sense of place, why we love the Northwest and why we love calling it home. All of that will be affected.
0: Coming up.
3: I live in Tanan, otherwise known as Fairbanks. These are the lands of the lower Dene people. It's the land of fireweed and northern lights and berry picking and a really strong and tight-knit community that makes you want to stay.
0: Next, we're headed north, way north to Alaska. Alaska has unique experiences, native systems, and an experience of climate change all their own. Alyssa Quintine, NCA5 author and Alaska resident, joins us after the break.
1: The next stop on our road trip is Alaska, and I'm joined today by Alyssa Quintin. Alyssa is an interior community organizer at the Alaska Center and an author on the Alaska chapter of NCA5. Welcome, Alyssa. Hi, thanks for having me. Now, Alaska is the one region within the National Climate Assessment that's both a region and a state all by itself. But I know it's also a really big and diverse place. Can you introduce us to your home state?
3: Yeah, well, Alaska is the farthest north in the country. We're also really diverse of not just having all sorts of frozen tundra that a lot of people consider us to have, but we also have wetlands, we have rainforests, we have river plains, all sorts of boreal forests. It's just a very beautiful state. I live in Tanan, otherwise known as Fairbanks. We are a river town smack dab between the China and the Tanana River. And these are the lands of the Lower Tanana Dene people. It's the land of fireweed and northern lights and berry picking and a really strong and tight-knit community that makes you want to stay.
1: Is that the river where they do the lottery on the ice breakups? Yes, the yeah, oh. the Tanana
3: tripod.
1: <laughs> I love that story. It's so interesting. Uh, it's one of our climate indicators showing how the the ice is breaking up earlier and earlier each year.
3: And it's something that's been going on for more than a hundred years, but it happens in another town in the interior, Ninana. That's about an hour away from Fairbanks, and essentially they just put a tripod in the middle of the Tanana River. And it's kind of a tradition to figure out when the ice is going to break and when the ice really starts moving. And it's an indication for us when spring really starts to hit. And everybody sort of pulls into the jackpot. So it's kind of a community-based lottery. And whoever picks the right day and the right time gets the jackpot. So you can win close to like 200,000, if not more. It's a very, very interior Alaska, very, very Nenana thing to do.
1: I love it too, because it's community climate research that's been going on for more than 100 years of collecting this data when the river ice breaks up. And what sort of impacts have you seen uh, where you live in Fairbanks?
3: You know, I remember the first ice storm that we had when I was in high school, and that was probably in the mid-2000s. Everything was covered and encased in ice. You couldn't get anywhere. You couldn't drive anywhere. And now that's become, not if it's going to happen, but when it's going to happen. And how devastating is it going to be? You know, I've seen bushfires that's happened in my neighborhood and The wildfires getting more and more intense each year and the smoke getting worse and worse and closer to town to flash flooding that happens in our downtown area, which is really not common and really scary because that's where a lot of emergency services are. That's where a lot of our schools are. That's where a lot of our elders and senior care is. That's where hospitals are. (laughs) Anybody who's been here for five years knows that it's happening and it's scary and we don't really have an infrastructure to help us prepare.
1: And what sort of things are Alaskan communities doing to respond to the climate impacts you're facing? I think one of the best
3: things is community initiatives. I mean, there comes a point where you have to work together, but when you start, you can kind of show that switching to solar is 100% possible in a place like Fairbanks. And we can do that with just our neighbors and we can create systems where we not only have those savings so our energy bills aren't as expensive but we can also look and see of how we can possibly expand that for emergency and disaster preparation and how we can work with our municipal governments and our state legislature to make those things more widespread and more accessible to more people in our community. You know, working with our own communities to do the research that we know is lacking and gapping in current academics when it comes to climate change, doing the research and doing the conversations that need to happen with our communities when it comes to understanding the impacts, not just with Alaska Native communities, but also other communities of color. We have no research when it comes to how Black people in Alaska are affected by climate change because no one studies it. And as a Black woman myself, that's really important.
4: Coming up. There is a lot of kind of commitment and innovation that's happening across the communities. You know, we've got cities like Milwaukee and Columbus and Cincinnati and other areas thinking about just how to build in more of the green infrastructure, nature based solutions that would help us get to more
0: environmental sustainability. Next stop on our road trip is the Midwest. Lead author Aaron Wilson joins us from the heart of the country to talk about climate change in the Rust Belt.
1: Our next stop on our road trip is the Midwest, and I am very excited to be joined by Aaron Wilson. Uh, Aaron is an assistant professor at Ohio State University and a research scientist with the Bird, Polar, and Climate Research Center, and also Ohio State climatologist. And his role on the National Climate Assessment was the chapter lead of the Midwest chapter. Thanks for joining us, Aaron.
4: My pleasure, Allison. Thank you.
1: Now I'm originally from the Midwest myself, so I, you know, I am playing favorites a little bit with this chapter, but I wanted to start off with something that I hear a lot from my own family and friends back home. And what I hear them saying often is, when is my basement going to stop flooding? (laughs) And so I wanted to ask you about, about flooding, but also on a larger scale than just the household level. I know there've been some cases where cities like Chicago have experienced water and sewage utility challenges whenever we're hit by extreme rain events. Can you tell me what are people in the Midwest doing in response to these climate impacts?
4: Yeah, there is a lot of kind of commitment and innovation that's happening across the communities, especially from a planning, and an investing point of view. You know, we've got cities like Milwaukee and Columbus and Cincinnati and other areas thinking about these, you know, combined sewer overflows and thinking about just how to build in more of the green infrastructure, nature-based solutions that would help us get to more environmental sustainability to deal with what is a very pressing issue here across the Midwest with the extreme rainfall. But also the oscillations between extreme rainfall and dry conditions, you know, which we don't often hear as much about. But, you know, from a state climatologist perspective, we want folks to know that it's both sides of the hydrologic variability and extreme variability that are a big issue here in the Midwest.
1: So too much water and not enough water at the same time. Exactly. Can you talk a little bit more about those oscillations and and help our listeners understand why this is happening in their neighborhoods?
4: Yeah, this is a great question with lots of nuance, too, when you think from a physical perspective and then the ultimate impacts here in the Midwest. Of course, temperatures are increasing, but when you think about more than just temperatures, it's all the feedbacks into into our hydrology and the hydrologic cycle that are really important here. You know, when, when you increase temperatures across the globe, you increase ocean and you increase land temperatures, you get an increase in that evaporation rate, leading to more moisture being elevated into the atmosphere. If you've got more water in the atmosphere, more water vapor that condenses into rain, those fronts can squeeze that rain out and you get heavier rainfall events. And so instead of seeing, you know, one or two inch rainfall rates per hour, we're starting to see the four, the five inch rainfall events, the five and a half inch rainfall events depending on what the land surface looks like. That means more water coming all at once. Where does it go? You know, does it lead to more runoff? Does it lead to that urban flooding? It's much more than just temperatures are increasing, but it's affecting this hydrologic cycle that is equally important. And then when we think about you know rapid drying conditions, again, if you're increasing that evaporation rate, especially during the summer, a farm field might pick up five and a half inches of rain in one afternoon and then go two or three weeks where they're not seeing any rain. And then you get back to very extreme dry and drought conditions that have an impact.
1: I describe those oscillations as very similar to those features in the kids' pool where there's a you know a big bucket up on a pole. And the bucket fills up with water and when it gets so full, it, it tips over and you know the kids run around underneath it. And I describe it as climate change making those buckets bigger. So it takes longer to fill up with water and, and you're kind of in a drought while you're waiting for the bucket to fill up. And then when it tips over, there's more water in the larger buckets. So you get these heavy rain events or flooding events. Is that kind of a fair analogy?
4: I think that is a good analogy. And then I would add to that, you know, whatever returns that water back into that bucket is also at a faster pace, right? And so you you get more of that water that's filling up those buckets as well at, at a faster rate. So you're losing that water that
1: just came down. I was wondering if you could leave us with any big takeaways you have for climate change impacts and response in the Midwest.
4: So, certainly, I think it's important that this is a human story, right? And I think that that's the wonderful part about National Climate Assessment Five here is that this is a human story, and we're thinking about What do we value and cherish as Midwesterners? What's uniquely Midwestern? The cultural ties to our land, but also the threats to the food supply and the water supply and the transportation. These are things that are at stake, right? But I think our communities are energized. They're mobilizing, as we mentioned, through organization and and thinking about adaptation and climate smart agriculture and climate smart techniques. They're generating adaptation plans for our cities, but also action plans. Think about emissions, think about, you know, how do we enact innovation through technology and and better planning, local and state coordination, which is really important. So emergency management agencies, state agencies getting involved, incorporating climate change resources into what we're doing. All of it is to decrease this risk to our communities and our ways of life that we cherish.
5: Coming up. The Southeast region is gigantic, 11 different states. And so all those people in all those different places from rural to urban, from coastal to mountain. I mean, you name it, the Southeast tends to have that landscape.
0: Southeastern United States is our next pit stop. We talk with NCA5 author Jeremy Hoffman on the unique risks and communities of the Southeast.
1: Our next stop on our cross-country road trip is the Southeast, and I'm very lucky to be joined by Jeremy Hoffman, who is the Director of Climate Justice and Impact at Groundworks USA, and was formerly the David and Jane Cohn Chief Scientist at the Science Museum of Virginia, where most of his work on NCA5 was completed. Jeremy is the chapter lead of the Southeast chapter, and so a perfect person to introduce us to the region. Welcome, Jeremy.
5: Thank you so much for inviting me to join you on a little trip through the Southeast.
1: We're very glad to have you along our road trip. So the Southeast is a pretty big region with a lot of states covered in your chapter. So I was wondering if you could first give us a little context about the region, what states are covered, and and maybe some of their similarities and differences.
5: The southeast region is gigantic. We have a 11 state region. So all the way from Virginia where I live down to Florida, over to Louisiana and up through, you know, Arkansas and Kentucky. So we have basically a really 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 big uh, area of the country represented. 11 different states and so all those people in all those different places from rural to urban from coastal to mountain, I mean, you name it, the Southeast tends to have that landscape. And so it's also one of the fastest growing regions of the entire country. A lot of that growth tends to be concentrated in coastal communities and in the urban environments. What that means is that as more people call the Southeast home, the threats that climate change poses to the Southeast kind of get more impactful from the sense of how many people are experiencing those threats.
1: Can you give us a little sense of some of the underlying characteristics of those people? What does it look like to live in the Southeast? What are the underlying health situations or economic situations in the area?
5: There is vast inequality in the Southeast. I mean, from virtually any perspective, we have both kind of the lowest resourced individuals to some of the wealthiest individuals living within the same geographic context, like within the same county. There can be huge socioeconomic disparity within that same place. And we see things like life expectancy having 10, 15, 20 year variation across some of our areas in the Southeast. We also see that based on where you start your life, that relates directly to long-term economic status. So not only does this socioeconomic health-related disparity currently exist, it seems to be intergenerational.
1: Uh, One of the things I found really interesting about your chapter were all the case studies in there that were showing how different people in your region are affected by climate change and, of course, how certain communities might be more disproportionately affected by these impacts. Can you tell the story of the Gulagichi Heritage Corridor? Because I really liked that case study.
5: Yeah, I think a really great part of our chapter is the inclusion of many different perspectives from communities that are disproportionately exposed to climate threats and really pursuing innovative ways of ameliorating those obstacles. One of them being the gullah geechee heritage corridor the gullah geechee people typically inhabit coastal communities and little islands from north carolina down to florida uh, that's a testament to their heritage as the descendants of formerly enslaved people in the southeast like any coastal community, they're under a variety of different climate-related threats, from sea level change to intense precipitation events and the intensification of Atlantic Basin hurricanes, especially when it comes to their property. Interestingly, we learned that the Gullah Geechee, like some other coastal communities, reside on heirs property or property that's passed down in a family where the possession of that property is authentic, but the documentation of that ownership can be really complicated, if it exists at all. And for many years, federal disaster aid policies just did not recognize heirs' property as real ownership. So that limited the ability for federal disaster aid to reach families that are a part of the Gullah Cultural Heritage Corridor. And so they worked directly with FEMA to identify the various policy barriers And then actually came up with revisions for Gullagichi citizens that were seeking recovery aid. And that actually paid off almost immediately in that the hurricane season following those revisions in 2022, this actually enabled federal recovery funds to get distributed to the most in need families in the corridor. And so now they have a kind of a standing climate resilience committee made up of residents that engages on these topics relevant to coastal change and and other climate-related threats.
1: Oh, that's amazing. And such a testament, too, to how important it is to have those communities at the table when we're talking about both the climate impacts and how we prepare and respond to climate change.
5: Absolutely. and I think our chapter really makes an effort to highlight that very absolute need for building climate related benefits and and resilience it really is one of the critical aspects of building resilience is that community leading the way with their vision and voice making the decisions coming up
6: something that i would like to have our listeners remember is that these places are amazing these are gorgeous locations with very deep historical backgrounds and very rich cultural settings.
0: In our last stop on our trip around the country, we look to the islands. We're joined by NCA5 authors, Abby Frazier and Isabel Rivera colazo to talk about the unique experiences and unique climate risks that Americans living in island communities face.
1: Our next stop on the the around-the-country road trip is to go a little off-road, and we are going to be talking to some experts from islands of the U.S. So I'm joined here by Abby Frazier, who's an assistant professor in geography at Clark University and a climatologist who studies the dynamics of climate change and climate variability. She is the lead author of the Hawaii and the U.S.-affiliated Pacific Islands in in the 5th National Climate Assessment. And I'm also joined by Isabel Rivero-Coggiazzo, who is the Associate Professor on Biological, Ecological, and Human Adaptations to Climate Change at Scripps Institution of Oceanography and directs the Scripps Human Ecology Laboratory. Isabel is an author from the U.S. Caribbean chapter of NCA5. Welcome, Abby. Welcome, Isabel. Thanks so much for having us, Allison. You two represent two distinct regions quite far apart from one another. I was hoping you could start us off by telling us a little bit about your region. Sure. So our chapter includes the state of
7: Hawaii, as well as what we call the U.S.-affiliated Pacific Islands, or U.S.A.P.I., And that includes the Commonwealth of the Northern Mariana Islands, the unincorporated territories of American Samoa, Guam and the Pacific remote islands, as well as three freely associated states, which are the Federated States of Micronesia, the Republic of the Marshall Islands, and the Republic of Palau. So this is an extremely broad geography that we're covering. We have around 1.9 million people in our region. The region is made up of over 2,000 islands, and contain a very diverse group of island peoples. We have many indigenous peoples speaking more than 20 different indigenous languages and all all of these peoples are connected by the Pacific
6: Ocean. The US Caribbean is the northeastern corner of the Caribbean archipelago. We are composed of several islands including Puerto Rico and the US Virgin Islands. Puerto Rico is an archipelago of three islands, the largest one, Puerto Rico, or, or also the indigenous name is Boriquén, and two additional um, island municipalities, which are Vieques and Culebra, and then the U.S. Virgin Islands, which is also a set of uh, multiple islands and archipelago, and includes San Thomas, St. John, and St. Crack. And uh, what's interesting in the U.S. Caribbean is that there is a big difference in terms of population. Puerto Rico, the archipelago of Puerto Rico has 3.3 3 million people, but most of them live on the large island, while Vieques has about 9,000, 8,000 inhabitants, and Culebra has only 1,300, 1,400. And the U.S. Virgin Island has more even distribution of population, but in total, there is 106,000 people. Similar to what Abby was mentioning, the history of who we are as Caribbean people uh, shapes the flavor, but also the challenges that we are facing on these islands um, is strongly shaped by the history of uh, globalization and modernization of the planet. Isabella, I'm wondering if you can tell us a little bit more about what climate change impacts are of greatest concern in the U.S. Caribbean. So something that is super fascinating of the northeastern corner of the Caribbean archipelago is how our climates are affected by oceanographic processes. But what is also fascinating is that our islands are pretty small. So when we do the climate change modeling, most of our islands fall within individual pixels. So we are facing many climate challenges, but there is not enough information to understand precisely what those challenges are. But we are seeing already increase in storminess, not just of hurricanes and summer storms, but also of winter storms, which are weather phenomena that happen on the northwestern hemisphere, especially the east coast, that generates high-intensity waves that reach the islands as, as well, that trigger erosion. So, uh, and the other huge problem that we are already feeling very strongly is uh, increasing heat in temperature, especially during summer times, but also in winter times. Abby, did a lot of those impacts sound familiar to the Hawaiian region as well?
7: Yes, Hawaii and the U.S.-affiliated Pacific Islands are experiencing a lot of those similar challenges. Most of the things you said, (laughs) Isabel, resonate in our region as well. Sea level rise has enormous impacts on our built environment, as well as our coastal ecosystems and particularly our cultural and historical resources. A lot of these are located along the coast, and it's more than just a built environment issue when we think about losses in those regions. We are experiencing changing rainfall patterns as our region is extremely vast across the Pacific. We have some islands that are expected to become wetter in the future, while other islands are projected to see drying trends, which threatens our water security. And we've been already experiencing worsening drought across many islands, including the
1: Hawaiian islands. Debbie, you were in Hawaii just recently when the fires in Lahaina were ongoing. Can you tell us a little bit more about those and some of the climate drivers that played a role in those huge fires? I was, and then I flew back as they were worsening.
7: <laughs> yeah. So in August, 2023, we had devastating fires across Hawaii and in particularly on the island of Maui. And the Lahaina fire, for example, was just this perfect combination of weather conditions. Uh, We had high winds associated with Hurricane Dora and a high pressure system to the north, along with low humidity and drought. We had huge amounts of fuels that were ready to burn. So these fuels are non-native grasses that are largely unmanaged and cover about 25% of Hawaii's land area. And they were ready to burn, extremely flammable, and then all we needed was an ignition source. And that's what led to this fire being so absolutely horrific and apocalyptic in many ways. So many Pacific islands have extremely high wildfire risk, and that wildfire risk is expected
6: to increase in the future. From the Caribbean, we were looking with a lot of fear at what was happening in in Hawaii because we are used to thinking about uh, hurricanes and about sea level rise and rain and drought as threats, but often we do not consider wildfires as one of the risks, thinking that we are tropical locations, it's wet. We don't have that problem, but that is one of the things that is happening with climate change as we are moving into conditions that as societies we're not used to
1: before we leave Puerto Rico
6: and the U.S. Virgin Islands, any last big takeaways you want to leave our listeners with? Something that I would like to have our listeners remember is that these places are amazing. These are gorgeous locations with very deep historical backgrounds and very rich cultural settings that are at risk of disappearing because of multiple things. But our heritage, our identity, our tradition is what our traditions in plural is what makes us unique. There are many situations that are increasing our ability to define our survival to climate change, in preserving our identity, and that includes, for example, disaster capitalism. So after disasters like this, people drop in, and and that is increasing the loss of our identities and the loss of our heritage and traditions. So I would invite everyone to look at our chapters to learn more about who we are, what is our historical backgrounds, and what is that rich diversity of us as people, but also as places, as islands, as fascinating locations that are part of of this narrative that is assessed by the National Climate Assessment, Um, and also invite everyone to help us protect those traditions and cultures and heritage and uh, places, recognizing how fragile they could be. I would like to echo pretty much everything Isabel said,
7: because so much of that applies to the Pacific Islands region as well. I mean, we have this incredible region. It's incredibly beautiful, diverse, not only in, you know, our island peoples who have these complex and deep spiritual relationships between their lands, their waters, natural resources, but the cultures are so deep and rich, as well as our beautiful ecosystems and just there's a long history there too. Um, very complicated. Climate change is putting all of this at risk in the Pacific Islands, and we have extremely resilient people in in the islands. But they, you know, a lot of this, as Isabel said, is at risk of disappearing. And for some of our low atolls, entire islands are at risk of disappearing. Islands are often the least responsible for climate change in terms of emissions and. They emit minimal greenhouse gases, yet they are stepping up to the front lines of this climate change fight and taking huge strides in terms of trying to reduce their emissions, sequester carbon and doing it in an island way, respecting our our cultures and histories and really trying to lead the way globally.
1: All right, we are safely back home after that virtual carbon-free road trip around the country. One of the things that really struck me about all of our authors we visited was that each one of them used the word community at some point in our conversation. We talked a lot about the different impacts affecting different parts of the country, things like unprecedented heat waves and flooding and wildfires. but. All of those conversations kept coming back to people, back to that human story. I think almost everyone we spoke with also mentioned the impacts of climate change on culture and heritage and traditions. The National Climate Assessment describes how climate change is really transforming US landscapes, how it's affecting many of our deeply rooted community ties or pastimes, our cultural or spiritual connections to place. As we traveled from region to region, you could really hear the love these authors have for their neighborhoods and their neighbors, the things they love about their home and the activities they love doing there. You could hear the pride our authors have for the truly beautiful places they come from, for the rich cultures and traditions that make each of those places unique. No matter where you are, we think that love and pride for home and community is something we all share and something that connects us all in our efforts to tackle the climate crisis. Thank you for listening. And wherever you might call home, thank you for being a part of The Climate Solution.
0: The NCA5 Companion Podcast was produced by the US Global Change Research Program. These podcasts are intended to provide context and perspectives from the authors and participants of NCA5. They do not represent official positions of the United States government. Production by Chris Avery and Allison Crimmins, who also served as host. Editing, mixing, and scoring by Mallory Hinks. Thank you to our guests, Michael Chang, Alyssa Quintine, Aaron Wilson, Jeremy Hoffman, Abby Frazier, and Isabel Rivera-Colazzo. Thanks also to Aliza Lustig, Aaron Grade, Lori Howell, and Mike Cooperberg for their support in developing this series. The NCA is the U.S. government's premier report on climate change impacts, risks, and adaptation across the nation. It is a congressionally mandated interagency effort that brings together hundreds of experts from federal, state, and local governments, as well as the academic, nonprofit, and private sectors. Information about the NCA5, including the process used to create the assessment, can be found on the NCA5 website at nca2023.globalchange.gov.